0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Letter to the church in Ephesus. I think this. Yeah, this is our third Sunday uh, so far in the letter. And um, before we even get into it, just a kind of a general observation. Um, Sometimes in Paul's letters, especially ones like Ephesians, uh, Colossians, uh, we kind of read it, and it just seems like he is just like out there, right? He's talking about this, you know. Theoretical kind of ethereal stuff. And it, it's really kind of easy. I remember um, not that long ago we were in a group and we read a passage from Ephesians and it was kind of this collective okay at the end because it's just hard to get your hands wrapped around it sometimes. But I think if we just kind of read these passages, especially in letters like Ephesians, a little more slowly and look a little more carefully, um, Paul really is speaking to some everyday real issues. Maybe a little bit different than he did in, in the Corinthian letters that we just looked at, only because there the problems were so big and so large and so loud, he just like went right to it. Here he uses a little more um, cautious, not cautious, a little more deliberate approach in laying groundwork before he addresses the issue. So I think as we go through this letter, a little bit more slowly and carefully, we'll find that Paul really is speaking to issues In our life. So far, we've noticed um, a couple of very significant things as we move forward. First, um, the idea that everything that is being said is based on a change in our status. Paul talks about a change in our status. We have become the children of God. We have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are now his children, and that's a change in our status. We are adopted, that's the basis of our relationship with Him. And all that we do with God is based on that change in status. And the second thing we observed last week was that as children, we have an inheritance. We are the inheritors of God, and that we've already received a down payment, if you will, or earnest money, whatever kind of word you want to use, a pledge of that adopted status, of that inheritance, in the indwelling presence of His Spirit. And we talked about the Holy Spirit being a seal of our relationship with with him, and so both of these things our change in status, our inheritance, the pledge that we've received are accomplished through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got to have that down before we move forward. Right, every one of us we come to Christ, we accept the offer of salvation through the blood shed, blood of Christ. We enter into this relationship as the adopted children because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? These are truths we need to hang on to because it, I don't think it's news to anybody to say as we go through life, things can get rough. Sometimes we feel like i um, You know, the pinball and the pinball machine, just getting bounced around by circumstances in life. And it can be pretty hard, and it really helps to know. I would say it's essential to know that we have some biblical truths we can hang on to that are absolutes. And so we're going to continue in that vein this morning, starting in the first chapter, in the 15th verse through the end of the chapter. So, reading from the New American Standard Translation, Paul writes, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, And your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, that you speak to us. Father, in words we can understand, Lord. We thank you for your spirit, Father, who guides us as we look to your word and guides our thoughts and understanding, Lord, who walks with us every day, Father, abides in us. Lord, we thank you for your presence, your power, Father, even as we're mindful of needs, Father, the needs Um, In our lives, the needs uh, in the world, even as we were, were taught about the persecuted church father in Tajikistan, Lord, we're so conscious of the needs and yet we approach you in a confidence this morning because you are great. Your name is to be praised and you are most certainly equal to any task, Father, that we would bring before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage this morning is all about prayer and we should note it's not a prayer it's not Paul saying, I'm praying this right now. He's telling them about the pattern of his prayer, how he prays for the Ephesian church. And he lays it out, I think, pretty clearly. First of all, he talks about the occasion of his prayer, what leads him to prayer, or when he prays for the Ephesian church. Then he talks about exactly what it is he prays for when he prays for the Ephesian church. And then finally, why he prays the way, what he bases it on. So the occasion of his praying, when he prays, what he prays for, and why he can pray the way he does. So that's how we're going to look at it this morning. First of all, the occasion of Paul's prayer, when he prays. He tells the Ephesian church in verses 15 and 16 about the timing of his prayer for them. He said, having heard, in verse, this is verse 15, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus among you. Paul has received reports from the Ephesian church. And he's received reports how really well things are going. They have great, great faith. And his prayer is in response to what he's heard. He's heard good stuff. Now let's be honest. When do we normally pray for people? When we hear about bad stuff. When we hear about troubles. We're, we've been praying for Amy as we should. She's in a real critical place. We've prayed for her family. They're in a critical place. That's, we should pray that way. But we should at the same time not forget to pray for people who are doing really well. Because when people are doing really well, you don't necessarily know what's under the surface of doing really well. Or you don't know what's coming around the corner. And you don't, even people who are in a really good place in their walk with the Lord, there's always that that need to move forward. One of the things we're going to discover in this particular chapter is Paul's concern about either churches collectively or individuals who come to a static place. We never want that to happen. We never want to be static in our relationship with the Lord. We always need to be moving forward in him. So even though this church is really doing well, he says, I'm still going to pray for you. I still do pray for you. And notice he says, I never cease giving thanks for you. The basis of his prayer is thanksgiving. That is so important for us. You know, we just went through that whole experience of Paul with the Corinthian church and those letters and like one problem after another. I know the Apostle Paul didn't have a telephone. But if he had a telephone, When it rang, you know what his first thought was. What's going on in Corinth now? What do I got to deal with in Corinth now, right? And then the phone rings, and it's, hey, it's the elders in Ephesus. Just want to let you know things are going great. Thank you, Lord. Right? Very real, very practical. Paul said, I always want to thank the Lord for you guys because when it's you, it's good news. And so I want you to know that. But I also want to note that he says, I make mention of you in my prayers. And that phrase, in my prayers, strongly suggests... That the Apostle Paul had a group of prayers that he prayed, and that he prayed regularly. It strongly suggests a regular habit of disciplined prayer, which shouldn't surprise us. The New Testament records more than 40 of Paul's prayers. And that doesn't count all the times he called on other people to pray. Paul understood and he practiced prayer, because he understood its value. So Paul um, has a church that's doing well. They're thriving. He gives thanks to them, but he also prays for them habitually, regularly, constantly making mention of them in his prayers. Now, in verse 17, we start to look at what Paul prays for, the specificity of his prayers. He says in verse 17, that the Lord, or rather the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, you guys are doing great, but I'm praying for that your minds would be open to how much more there is. Your church is strong. Your church walks in faith. I want you to know how much more there is. And it's going to take revelation to get you there. It's going to take the Spirit of God, who already dwells within you, to open your understanding, and that's what I'm praying, right? There's so much of God you have yet to learn, you need to learn, because we don't want the church to become static, right? Verse 18, he says this, and this is where I want to focus most of our attention this morning, because here's Paul laying out exactly what he prays for in the church. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. There's things that you yet do not understand. You're a great church. You're really doing well. Paul spent two years there. So a great foundation was laid. But there's things you yet don't understand. And there's going to have to be an enlightening for that to happen. You're just not going to figure it out on your own. This has got to be a, a source of light coming into your heart and mind, and that, of course that source of light is the Spirit of God, illuminating the Word of God, taking what they had already been taught, what they already knew of the Lord, and bringing a light to their consciousness so they might understand it better. I think most of us have had this experience. You've read a passage of Scripture, you've read it, you know, countless times, and one day you pick it up and you read it and you go, oh, hadn't seen that before. And it's God speaking to a situation. That's that enlightenment he's talking about. It comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, what's this truth that Paul prays will enlighten their heart? And he, he breaks this truth into three parts. Paul has a habit of doing that, breaking things into three parts. And he has three specific things he wants the believers in this good, solid church to know, right? The first, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. I pray that you would know what is the hope of his calling. And we've talked about this before. I think most of us come to faith, most of us come to Christ, out of an understanding of need. Right? We come to be saved. We come to be saved from what? We come to be saved from our sins. We come to be saved from the eternal consequences of our sin, which is hell. We come to be saved from the dominion of sin in our lives. I'm sick and tired of doing what I do. I need to be saved from the power of the evil one and the power of my sin. I need to be saved from a meaningless life with no purpose. We come to God looking for salvation from something, right? And that's what we're supposed to do, right? The problem, and of course, praise be to God, he does that. He saves us. Jesus is Savior. That's what he does. He saves us. He saves us from the existential threat that all those things embrace, include right the problem is many of us stop there we've got the we've got the immediate threat whatever it was that pushed us towards Christ in the first place whatever it was that drove us to seek out Christ his saving power we we get that and we experience that lightness of spirit that lightness of heart that sense of freedom and deliverance and we're, yeah this is great but there's a tendency to stop there because the need's been met the crisis has been solved right We get that sense of freedom, we know that we're saved and we stop there. It's a common phenomenon because the perceived need has been met. But there is so much more and it starts with knowing what is the hope of our calling. You know, as followers of Christ, every one of us has a calling. Now when we think about calling, we normally think of more specific callings. You know, my call to preach and teach. My wife's call is counselor or ministry. We think about people that have specific callings. And a great many of us here have specific callings. The title is not always attached to it. But all of us as believers, he's talking to the whole church here, all of us have believers, whatever title you want to put on it, we all had a calling, and Paul says it's absolutely critical that we understand the hope of that calling. So exactly what is this calling that every one of us has, right? Well, simply put, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? A few weeks back, we talked about, I talked about one of those old choruses that consists of about one verse that we just sang over and over and over. Well, here's another one. He has called us, I know Scott's gonna remember this one. He has called us, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we sang that again and again and again. And that was good because it stuck. He has called us out of darkness. Here's how Peter puts that. A lot of times we think about Peter and Paul being at odds with one another. Well, sometimes they were. But more often than not, they were reading off the exact same page. And this is one case of that. Peter writes this. This is 1 Peter 9, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. You're a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You see the whole, whole inclusion of both salvation and status change? Salvation and redemption, we've been talking about that, right? You once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing at which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. So that is our calling. That is a calling that every Christian is given. We're called out of darkness into light, and we're called to live as children of the light. That's a Pauline expression, to live as children of the light. All of us share this calling. We've been saved, delivered from the power of sin and evil. We've been delivered from death. Our status is the children of God, and so we're called into a priesthood. I'm a pastor, not a priest. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm a pastor, which most of you are not, but I'm not a priest in the sense that we all are priests. I have no more priestly responsibility. I have no more priestly function. I have no more priestly unction than any of y'all do because we're called to be a kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? A priest intercedes for his people. And that is the, if there's one single thing that the church needs to be active in today, it's intercession for our nation. Because, it, you know, you don't even have to turn on the news, just listen to the conversation. And you know how, how desperately our our nation needs something. You know what it needs? Does it need a new political party in charge? Nah, really, it's not going to change that much. Do we need a, you know... A, a, a new network that will you know, tell us the truth, that won't change that much. Any of those things, this could go on. You know what we need, this nation needs? A church that intercedes for it. A church that brings this nation before the throne of, of God and says, Lord, have mercy, for we have sinned greatly against you. Lord, have mercy, for we desperately need the moving of your spirit. That's the need of our nation, is a church that will intercede for it. We're called to holiness, to live lives that reflect his character, to be his people. You want to know what your calling is in Christ? Peter's list is a really good place to start, and it's all based on faith. Note he said the hope of this calling. This calling is anchored in hope, and the reason this calling is anchored in hope is that when I look at that list and I look at me, I guess it's not going to happen. I know me well enough to know that if it's up to me, it's not going to happen. The only way I'm going to match up with this list is is if God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, does it through me. I am wholly dependent on that. But I have hope that God will do that. I have hope that he is working out my priesthood. I hope that he is working out holiness in my life. I hope that he is working out my walk as a child of light in my life. Because he's promised to do that. So there's a hope that is the basis of this calling. That's the first thing he says. First thing he says is you would know it is the hope of your calling. The second thing he says, this one threw me a little bit for a while. He said, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I thought it was like a typo. Because we've been talking about our inheritance. We inherit from him. We're his children. We're adopted as his kids. So we get the inheritance, right? But now it says his inheritance. What's his inheritance? I had to to look that one up a little bit, spend some time on that one. And I found myself going back to the Old Testament. For in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, you know how God had divided up up the promised land among the different tribes of Israel, and each one had their own lot? That's what the word inheritance means. It's just a lot assigned by law. That's what the word means. Each tribe had their lot. Well, then God said this in Deuteronomy 32, 9, For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So each tribe got part. God got it all. That's, he, said, he said, that's my inheritance. You are all, he said, my inheritance. And then this extraordinary verse in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. And I really believe this is a magnificent peak we get into a conversation between the Father and the Son. And, as I, and if you'll allow me to do this, there's going to be about like a million flaws in this analogy, but it makes the point, so bear with me. I just visualize this conversation between the father and the son. And the father says, you're going to go to earth, be born as a human being. You're going to live with the weaknesses and the needs and the frailties of a human being, and then you're going to die. You're going to die a horrific death. Despite doing everything right, being perfect, you're going to die a horrific death. But you'll be raised again on the third day, and you will turn to my right hand. And the son says, okay, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And then, and this is my very human take on it, okay? This is where, this is where again, it's really bad, but it's how I see it because of my own humanity. The son says to the father, and what do I get out of it? And the father says this, Psalms 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. That's what he got out of the deal. I have no idea how the conversation went, if it even happened. But this is what he got out of the deal. The very ends of the earth is his possession. So even as we have an inheritance, being his children, so we are his inheritance, his portion, his lot. The chosen people of God, the people of God. I belong, you belong to him, and we will be that for all of eternity. Paul wanted the Ephesian church to understand not only that that was true, but that that inheritance, notice what he says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. He sees us as his inheritance, and he sees it as glorious. Now that one I can't wrap my brain around, because I know me and I know a lot of you, right? God sees us, and he sees it as glorious. He sees us, and it thrills his heart. I talked last week about, about my inheritance, part of my inheritance. Um, I talked about the fact that um, I, I, I don't wear much jewelry, but I wear two rings, one from my dad, one from my father-in-law, and they are my inheritance. And the importance of these is not in the value of the ring importance of these is what it reminds me of. It is my connection to these two men who profoundly influenced my life. Perhaps most importantly, it is a reminder and I've got my dad's on today of as an adoptee the choice my dad made to pour his love into me. He saw one who was not biologically his son And he treasured me. He valued me. He chose to see me as glorious and himself as rich because he was my father. And those were all choices he made. That's but a little bit of what the father feels when he looks at his church. Has chosen us to be his own. So yes, There is a glorious richness to our being, his inheritance. Not to mention the fact, you mess with this ring, I'm going to react to it. Right? You Try to grab this thing off my hand. I mean, here's the truth. I told this choice a long time ago. Somebody comes into my family, into my house, like at night, to hurt my family. They're not not making it out the door, right? You come into my house at night and grab the TV set. I may hold the door for you, right? Take it, right? I'm just not into you know material things. This is different because of what it represents. Somebody who touches us, the Bible says they have touched the apple of His eye. That's a powerful promise from the Word of God. Isn't it? Third thing, first thing was the hope of his calling. Second thing was the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's us, right? The third thing, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's talk about power. I know many of you here, we talked about this before. The Greek word for power, the word that's used here, is the word dynamis. You probably recognize it because it comes in English as dynamite. that's where our word dynamite comes from, right? You may very well know the story. When Alfred Nobel was looking for a practical, usable, commercial explosive, they had nitroglycerin, but it wasn't really useful. It was too unstable, it was dangerous, and it was a liquid. Kind of hard to use a liquid explosive, what do you do with it? And what Nobel discovered was that if he mixed it with silica, he created something that was first of all stable, it didn't just go off on its own, and it could be shaped. Okay. That's how we get, you know, the dynamite. I don't know, anybody, anybody ever actually handled a dynamite stick? I've never explained one. A quarter stick, maybe, I won't confess, but you've, you've handled that. Was it in a stick form? Okay, stick form. There's a reason it was originally placed in the stick form, and that is they would use it to blow mountains away. Now, when I say dynamite, what, comes to, what, what phrase comes to mind? They used it to blow things up, right? Not really. What they really used it to do was move things. Dynamite was used to move things. You have a mountain. You want to move it. You drill holes in it. You slide those cylinders down the holes. You fire them off, and the mountain moves. The rocks went from one place to another. Dynamite is dynamic. It causes change. The very meaning of the root from which dynamis is drawn means to change. Not necessarily destructive, it may be, but inherent in in the word is the idea of change. And that is where Paul is going throughout this entire letter. He wants them to see that God wants. God brings change. Change is the very nature of God. We talk about the power of God, we're talking about change. And this is change of a surpassingly great kind. The kind of change that Jesus... I, I can't think of a single place in the New Testament where Jesus showed up and nothing happened. Nothing changed. Even in his hometown, he said he could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. So even in a place with zero faith, he still did some miracles. right? And then there's my absolutely favorite one. This, this is so mind-boggling. Jesus brought change even when he wasn't trying. He's walking through a town. He's in a crowd of people. woman comes up behind him. She's had horrible illness. Twelve years she's been suffering. Doctors have tried anything. No success. She says to herself, if I but touch the hem of his garment, which is a whole Old Testament concept, in the hem of his garment, he is being indicated as priest and king. That's why she focused on the hem of his garment. That's her worldview, right? She said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She made her way through the crowd. She touched the hem of her garment. And what did Jesus say? Hold the procession. Something just happened. Power went out of me. There is no indication anywhere in that passage that he was pretending he didn't know she was there. There, Everything in that passage suggests he had no idea she was there. So through no deliberate effort of his own, he changed this woman's life. How? She perceived who he was. And when she touched him, Jesus said, Power has gone out of me to change things. By the power inherent in his person, because he was the Son of God, was the very nature of our Lord and Savior. It's the very nature of our God. Our God is a God of change. This is the one who spoke the cosmos into order you wonder how much power he's got? I googled, how much energy does it take to sustain the cosmos? Forget it, right? Couldn't even get a straight answer. How much energy does it take to keep our planets in orbit? Forget it. I did find how much energy, according to some physicist, it takes for just one sun in our galaxy to function. And the way he expressed it was the sun every second um, these numbers are off the top of my head, that sun every second is the power of f- 5 to the like 1,000th power Corvettes. I don't know why he chose Corvettes. Maybe he was a Corvette fan. But he said, take f- 5 to the 1,000th power Corvettes, run them full speed. That's the sun in one second, right? I can almost wrap my brain around that. Incomprehensible power. That's who we're dealing with, inherent in his being, and he is all about change. His power, he is dynamic. Aren't you glad that God's about change? One of the most inspiring things that was said to to my wife and I as we prepared to go to Greece and face all the stuff we were going to be facing there, it's a wild and crazy place to live, Was, was was an older missionary that had been around the world, and he said, always remember this, in every situation, nothing's permanent. Everything changes. He said, Don't ever get discouraged. He always says you'll get discouraged, but in your discouragement, always remember this things change. And why do they change? Because we serve a God of change. And he always moves things forward, right? We know he'll do that. So if you're dealing with something right, like I said, Paul is talking real practical stuff here. If you're facing a serious challenge right now, be mindful. We serve a God of change. Things change things change, right? Verse 19, Paul says why he can believe all these things. He says it's in accordance with the strength of his might. And that word accordance is a word that literally means against, but it doesn't mean against like he's against us. It means against like a, an extension ladder leans against a wall. Try to use an extension ladder without a wall, it's not a ladder anymore, right? It has to lean against something to work. It relies on it. So Paul says, everything I'm talking to you about here is reliant upon the strength of his might. And what might is that? It's which might he brought about, verse 20, in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Everything Paul is saying is resting upon an empty grave. None of this is theory. None of this is Paul's speculation. Paul said, everything I've just said to you rests solidly, as assuredly as a ladder resting against a wall, rests as solidly as solid gets because of the empty grave. God never calls on us to trust on anything less than the power of the resurrection. That's where it all comes from. And because of that, we can know with confidence that he is there, that he has called us, that he will move through us and in us And that change will come. So if you're struggling this morning to believe you really are His, remember the empty grave. He did that for you. If you're struggling to believe there really is a divine call, eternal purpose in your life, the empty grave proves that there is. If you're struggling to believe that you actually do fit into His eternal plan, you are indeed part of His inheritance. Be mindful of the price He paid to get you there if you're struggling to believe in things in your life actually can change, be mindful. The empty grave proves our God is a God of change. It's important to remember all that when we face challenges we come up against. When we don't see an answer and we have no idea where the answer is coming from or what it might be, when that happens, a deliberate act of our mind to turn to the empty grave and say, I know you did that for me. Father, I thank you that in all of the stuff we face, Lord, I, I, I listened to the report, in the prayer report. Uh, Father, for a church that has the full power and weight of its government attempting to literally put a lid on it. I mean, God, how discouraging that must be. And yet we know that church grows. And though they will suffer, it's, um, it's inevitable, Father. Churches and places like that, they'll suffer, Lord. I can't, even, I can't even imagine, Lord. But we know, we have a confidence, because we hear the church grows, that you change things, Father. You overcome obstacles. You deliver from the power of the evil one. And when suffering comes, you give strength to endure, because we know that ultimately, in time, change comes. So, Father, this morning, as we're here, And we're going through the the stuff we go through. Um, We want to begin to say thank you, Lord, for the good stuff that that we face, the good news that we hear, the good report. And, Father, we want to pray that you would strengthen us to face the challenges that we face. Because we are called to be your people. And the world is watching. And we want them to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand this morning and worship the Lord.